Welcome to the Corkscrew podcast on practice research beyond the PhD. Your host is Dr Sophie Hope, a practice-based researcher in the Film, Media and Cultural Studies Department at Birkbeck, University of London. Each episode brings you up close and personal to Sophie and a guest. We invite you to listen in to these personal stories and to be inspired. Hello and welcome to this episode. Today I'm talking to Professor Fiona Candlin. Fiona did her PhD uh, in 1998 at Keele University and the title of her PhD was Artwork and the Boundaries of Academia, a Theoretical Practical Negotiation of Contemporary Art Practice Within the Conventions of Academic Research. Welcome Fiona. Um, Could you maybe start by telling us a bit about why you did a PhD in the first place? Um, it was an accident, really, and I was I was invited to do one. So, um, I mean, the backstory of it is is I did a degree in fine art at Leeds um, in the eighties, which was and Leeds University at the time was very in, informed by social and feminist history. So if you were studying fine art, you also did a large component of history of art. Plus, my tutor at the time was Terry Atkinson, who was one of art and language. So big conceptual art group. So my practice training was already very based in theory and history. I then went off to do an MA in critical theory at Sussex, which I found totally terrifying And having finished that, I started applying for jobs. Um, And these were the days when you could just about get a job with an MA. So you didn't need a PhD to work in, say, an art college. And so I went from, I was working in a bookshop in Brighton. And then I got a job at Southport Art College teaching history and theory. And I had only just started that when I was asked to interview for a job at Keele. And they were setting up a new department in visual art, which, I mean, again, you can't imagine it now, the idea of setting up a new department in visual art from scratch, but that's what was happening. And Keele is is an interesting university because it it has a history of trying to encourage cross-disciplinary work. So when it was founded in the post-war period, students had to take a subsidiary outside their own subject areas. So, for instance, if you were studying literature, you had to take a subsidy in the sciences um, and vice versa. If you were in the sciences, you had to take a subsidy Mm. in arts. And there were four-year degrees to allow for that. So Kiel was a good place to do something that tried to cross disciplines and cross ways of working Um, and they were looking for somebody to teach and help set up this new course I was interviewed for it and I can still quite vividly remember the interview because there were about 12 people sitting around a huge wooden table in Keel Hall which is this sort of 19th century historic house and feeling completely overwhelmed by it um, and I didn't get I didn't get the job so but the vice chancellor said who chaired the interview said that he basically thought the issue was is I needed more experience and that I needed a PhD 
and they offered me a scholarship to do a PhD in the new department with some additional teaching, which I'd get paid for. So it was quite a, it was a reasonably generous graduate teaching assistant offer. Um, whilst at the same time saying that they didn't really know what a theory practice PhD would be like because nobody had done one at Kiel before. And so that's how I ended up doing it. I hadn't actually at any point thought about doing it, but it was something new that was happening and I suppose I fell into it. Yeah, what year was that? 93. It was 94 that I started. So the whole practice, practice, I mean, at that point it was called theory practice, um, whereas now it tends to be research-based practice, doesn't it? Um, I mean, it was still very new in, in universities. And in fact, we used to have these regular meetings with other students that were doing the same thing. And there was about four of us in the entire country mm. at that first meeting. It was... And who were your... Um, can I ask who your supervisors were? Who was supporting you through that? It was Francis Frasina, who had come... It was an art historian, and he had come from the Open University um, and was a social historian of art. And I didn't have anybody that came from a practice-based background, which was a problem. And with the, can you say a bit more about the PhD itself and how, how what was your practice as you were, um, as you were researching? I, I, was, I was totally lost. I mean, doing the PhD was actually a really, really difficult experience um, because there weren't any other students. So it was a new department. I was the only student. I mean, they started taking undergraduates the year after, but... It was another year after that before they started taking MA students. There were no other PhD students in the, trying to do this. So there was just me in a room. Um, I think Francis was completely... He was trying to set up a new department and I think he was rather overwhelmed by it all. And I don't think he knew what a practice-based PhD was going to be either. And it was not a happy supervisory relationship. And I got sent to things like a training course for social scientists. Um, and it was just like, you know, a literature review, review really? Is that what I have to do? Um, and I tried writing around various themes, you know, stuff that I was interested in, really. I didn't have a proposal. I didn't even have an outline for what I was going to work on. There was a kind of sense that I would just work that out once I'd started. And so I wrote on various things, but they weren't really coming together. I made a little bit of artwork, but most of it was sort of left unfinished. And then I decided that the way to deal with this and then also, the other thing is, is I'd moved to Stoke and I didn't know anybody. So, I mean, the whole thing was just kind of rather isolating and lonely and <laughs> grim. Um, and 
I decided that what I would do is I would start to write about what these PhDs were and how they'd been set up to try and understand what it was that I was being expected to do because nobody seemed able to tell me. Um, And so I started looking at the way in which, God, it's such, I can barely even remember this. Um, I started looking at the development of art school education from the kind of early 60s onwards and how you'd got the introduction of contextual studies. So the point at which history became introduced into fine art practice and then how that also connected up with the rise of feminist and conceptual art practices that similarly emphasised the importance of learning. Um, And alongside that, I looked at the status of the art school and how that had changed. Because basically when you get the move from the independent art school into the polys and then really significantly into the universities, there's massive changes in institutional structure and universities became required the art departments became required once they were in the university to demonstrate research because that's how you get funded. So there was a huge institutional imperative to produce this thing called research. Um, so I was looking at the both the conditions within art practice but also within art education about how this idea of art practice as research had emerged and been formed And then I started looking at ideas. And having done that, I think I basically realised that this is what the PhD was going to be about, that this wasn't something I would just write and would clear my head so that I could do whatever this other thing was. That's what the PhD was about. And then the other chapters very much looked at the status of knowledge. So it's about the status of knowledge. How do you understand a thing as knowledge? So why is one thing a painting or an installation and the other thing is research? But by extension, why is this thing that somebody does in a laboratory research or why is a thing that some something does in a library research? And how do we begin to recognise something as being a material artefact of knowledge or as, pro- as generating and producing knowledge? And why did that work for some kinds of activity and not for others? So, I mean, I ended up spending a lot of time reading Lyotard and Foucault and Derrida and writing about valid systems for the validation of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and why art hadn't been thought of in those terms, effectively. Um, and then at the same time, alongside that, I started making artwork, which was dealing with some aspect of being in the university. Um, And there was a range of stuff. I did quite a lot of portraits, um, but I also did various installations that were site-specific. And, um, I'm... Yeah, I did, I made a huge, I remember making a huge ivory tower and I took it for a walk. Keel Campus is rather lovely because it's an old historic house. 
and I took it for a walk around the historic, around the university to show the ivory tower what the university had become. And it was all cut to these very sort of elegiac, you know, bark, I think. I think it was a bark violin concerto. And and then the whole thing was shown in the senior common room, which was a really old-fashioned, wood-panelled senior common room. And I made a piece about there was a ghost in the hall, apparently. The the story of the ghost was... I did end up writing about this, actually. The... The story of the ghost was that the lady of the house had lived had lived there at some point in the indefinite past, had very beautiful hair, and her husband had objected to her brushing her own hair because that was beneath her status. She had a maid to do that. And um, to stop her brushing her hair, he cut her hands off. And um, so the ghost walks in the hall with no hands. Um, and there's variations on this story. And when I began asking about it, one of the things that was clear is that some people in the hall said that they had seen or heard things. But it didn't get talked about amongst the academics, but the cleaners and the maintenance staff all talked about it. And some of the academics would talk about it if you went and asked them. Um... Particularly, there was some. There were people that worked in the old servants' quarters at the top who said they'd heard things, and so I made a piece which was these cast arms um, without hands, and on a sort of memorial plinth, all made out of white wax, and in the big staircase that she was supposed to haunt, with a a rosemary branch kind of wreathing. Um, but there was a book that I made to go with it, which was about how I tried to contact the ghost and used automatic writing to speak to the ghost. And it kind of intercut with a story about how basically I'd arrived at Kiel and found it impossible to work, that I couldn't use my hands, that I couldn't make anything or write. So, which actually is pretty much what had happened. Um, and that, it was, you know, somewhere along the line, it was, and I was making a connection between myself and the ghost. Oh, and there was a huge, huge ghost photograph. So you know those Victorian ghost photographs that are double exposure? We did a, a double exposure photograph of me in a Victorian ball gown, which I'd bought in some junk market, walking down the stairs. Um, but it was a double exposure on a plate camera um, and then that was hung in there was actually a gap for a portrait in the stairwell so it was a huge photographic portrait of the ghost i.e me walking down the stairs so there was lots of stuff you know and did all I mean, did, that, did those pieces go into the phd the, the, the yeah. final package how was it yeah. it was all packaged up as like video documentation uh, no, I mean, that was, a real, that was a real issue because at the time they insisted that everything had to go in the library. Um, I mean, they were, I mean, basically, one of the issues was is that the university could not get their heads around the fact it might consist of anything else other than the thesis. So I took photographs of everything and then they were scanned and they were 
printed onto these huge pages that unfolded out of the thesis. And that was, I think, mainly a bit of bloody-mindedness because I wanted to somehow disrupt this kind of neat book. Um, I mean, I did far too much. I mean, that was the other thing. I mean, I wrote 60, 70,000 words of what was, a, you know, a highly theoretical thesis. And then probably did about five or six different sort of entire pieces or series. So some of those pieces consisted of about 20 pieces of photography or something. I mean, it was fast. There was loads of it. But, I mean, this was one of the issues, is nobody knew how... Um, how did you calculate? Nobody seemed to know. I think that's still... Um there's a degree of uncertainty still around that yeah. um and it seems so so sort of specific and um to the to the piece to the project um and with just moving kind of so you you, you finished that in 98 that was completed and then what happened next where did you go on to after you'd done this piece um, of work i went to india for six months just basically I, actually, I did a bit of teaching in an art school near Calcutta. Um, but mainly I just d disappeared for six months. Um, and I came back and I did a year's teaching on a sessional, on, well, an hourly paid contract um, in the um, School of Art History and Architecture at Liverpool University. I, actually, I did six months of that before. I, I can't quite remember the timeline. I think I did six months of that before we went to India, and then I came back and did a year. And that was, again, you know, different times. Um, all the way through my PhD, I worked part-time at Tate Liverpool. Um, and then for various reasons, which are far too lengthy and to go into, that job came to an end. And there was, it was rather contentious, the fact that I lost that job. And the guy that was the, the dean at the School of Architecture at that point rang me up and said to come and see him. And he, he was sitting there with this huge cigar and he just went, I hear you're in need of work. <laughs> and basically said, come and teach on the architecture, MA. And I seem to recall that I said, I don't know anything about architecture. <laughs> and he said, don't be ridiculous. You're a clever woman and you'll learn. <laughs> so basically, that's what happened. I ended up teaching on an architecture. I may know nothing about architecture. And how long were you there for? 18 months. And was it, was it a kind of, did you have a sense when you were doing your PhD that you, where you were wanted to go career-wise? Did you think, I'm going to, this is going to set me up for a life in academia or were you just thinking where the wind takes me? No, I mean, God, it's just, I mean, the idea of actually getting through this bloody thing seemed almost insurmountable. Yeah. I mean, looking back, you know, I actually think I did some really good work, but it really didn't feel like it at the time. Mm. And, you know, I really, I hated living in Stoke. Um, Stoke's a lovely place, by the way. Come on, 
can't do. No, in actual fact, I subsequently actually rather missed it, but I, I just, I didn't settle in. It's actually very like where I grew up, and I think that's one of the issues. Um, and, you know, by this point, all my mates had gone and moved to London, and I was desperately jealous yeah. of them. And, um, and it, it just, it, it, if there'd been a department where there were, I had peers and contemporaries, then that would have made a lot of difference. But it took me a, a, a second PhD student arrived a year later, Alessandro Imperato, and that made things a lot better. And I think I then also met some junior lecturers from other departments, and that slowly began to get better. But it 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 was slow and. And I think, you know, a lot of it would have just been if, if I had walked into a group of people doing similar things or actually to any group of people, it would have probably been manageable yeah. in a way that actually it just, it was hard going. Um, you know, yeah. and again, back in those days, they didn't really think much about the well-being of students. They just really expected you to get on with stuff. And then you spoke to a supervisor once a term. And you and you were working at the time. And yeah, I mean that was actually I loved working at Tate Liverpool because it felt like this enormous point of relief where I got to go and be a proper person for a day a week. And I was organising public programmes, which was really new there then as well. And I just got given a completely free reign to do all sorts of things, which was great. And I should say as well, I, I ended up in terms of work being really looked after by two people who became really important. And one was the photography technician who had, you know, left school at 15, did all the photography for the university, sculpted around smoking roll-ups in the university dark rooms. And I used to basically go and sit there in the dark and smoke and kind of moan at him. And he'd take me home to have dinner with his wife and family. <laughs> um, and then the other person, but was actually enormously supportive. And the other person was a professor in the management department called Bob Cooper, who was had worked very closely with John Law, who was one of the people that really began to develop actor network theory. And... Yeah. Bob Cooper was a bit of a sort of star in terms of philosophy meets organisational management. And he knew I was working at, I mean, it's a small university, so he heard about me and said that, asked me to go and see him. And I, and asked me to explain what my thesis was about. And he basically went, well, you're just writing about boundaries. And it was one of those moments where you just go, I'm writing about boundaries. Now I know what to do. And um, and I would have these tutorials with him where he would say things like that. And I would go away going, phew, the road is clear. Um, but um, so, so there were a couple of people that did end up helping enormously. Um, and, you know, actually Bob in some ways, because I ended up, you know, spending a lot of time reading things like actor network theory and that's probably had that's something that I would still work on now. That kind of view of what an organization is. But in terms of what happened next, is because basically it was actually much more to do with what happened at Tate Liverpool. 
because I started at Take Liverpool running seminars for sixth formers. That's what I was originally asked to do. And again, that was another, I mean, again, things have changed so much. I was offered that. So when I went for my job interview at Southport, the outgoing bloke mentioned me to somebody at Tate Liverpool and they rang me up and asked me to come in. And I then started teaching seminars for sixth formers and first year undergraduates. And then they asked me to start running the seminars and coordinating them. And then I was asked to basically start putting together public programmes where you invited the great and the good to come and talk on artwork, which is now very common but wasn't then. And then the other thing that we started doing and that I led on there was to start running accredited MA courses at Tate Liverpool using the collection that would be open to all the universities in the North West I mean, that's indicative of my kind of lack of experience. I even thought you could do this because I didn't realise how difficult it was to accredit things, much less to accredit them to eight different universities. But in actual fact, that's what we did and ran these programmes. Um, and then I'd been at Liverpool for a year. I was applying for jobs all over the place, permanent jobs, and getting interviewed and not getting them. And then a job came up, which was between Birkbeck and the British Museum. And they wanted somebody to basically occupy a crossover point where they would set up some kind of educational programmes that would be run through Birkbeck but use the collections of the British Museum. And that's pretty much what I'd been doing at Tate Modern. And there probably weren't that many people at that point who, had, who were doing that stuff. And so basically I joined Birkbeck, but on a joint contract with the British Museum. So I was in the education department, but also at Birkbeck. And then I've stayed at Birkbeck ever since, but my job's just changed. The whole thing with the job at the British Museum was effectively set up on a kind of handshake and a gentleman's agreement. And then once the initial contract came to an end it became clear how legally shaky all of this was and nobody had ever really done any detailed work about money and what was going to happen next. And that all became quite tricky. And it ended up with me being made permanent at Birkbeck and then the British Museum used to pay towards my time. Um, so that carried on to about 2009 and when Birkbeck was restructured and then I moved into History of Art. And do you, can you reflect a bit on the role of practice through that period and where you're at now as well with the, do you still consider yourself a, pra a practice really researcher? What is the relationship there? I'm not sure. Um, I think all research is practice. I mean, I think it's a total misnomer, this idea about research-based practice. You know, it's, you know, you think about the students that we have that are writing essays. Writing an essay is a practice and it's a really difficult one. You know, writing is a practice. There are different modes of writing and you have to learn them. And, and some people do it a lot better than others. And you can approach the practice of writing in different kinds of ways. Equally... 
so I always feel quite uneasy with this idea that working with some materials in some ways is practice, whereas writing isn't. I think that's, I mean, it's a legacy of a particular notion of knowledge that's, that's flawed. Um, and actually, I don't think it does anybody any favours because I think what happens a lot of the time is students don't realise the degree to which the quality of their writing matters in relationship to their success within academia. And we don't teach people how to write as such. We tell them what a paragraph is and hassle them about their footnotes. But, you know, in terms of, say, style, you know, or the fact that style has a politics, um, you know, the writing, you know, writing in an accessible way for a broader audience can be very much linked to certain kinds of ideas about useful knowledge or about knowledge going out beyond academia. Um, there's an awful lot of, you know, writing from the first person is enormously connected to feminist practice and, and ideas of situated knowledge. I mean, we, we don't really teach this stuff and we should. Um, I mean, I do a bit in at MA, but, you know, I don't know, I, I think we should do much more of it. But in terms of other practice, I mean, I think probably I've got a slightly more, um, trying to think of the right word. It might be something like erratic approach to research or more, I think especially as I've got older, I've been more interested in doing kinds of research that don't quite fit what's expected. And I think in some ways that's a legacy of art school. So, you know, I mean, you know, Sophie, I mean, recent, I spent the last few years driving a camper van around the UK interviewing people and hanging out in small museums. And that's, in some ways, that's a practice. Is that field work or is that practice? What would be the difference? Um, and, I, you know, I also work a lot with computer scientists and doing things like designing a database um, and having to classify information. I mean, all of these things are both hugely conceptual and have got practical elements to them. So, yes, I suppose in some ways I would see my work as... as having a relationship to practice, but I'd see everybody's work as having a relationship to practice, whether or not they acknowledge it. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's really key, that that uh, um, acknowledgement not only of, of the form of writing as, as and the style of writing as a process of through which research takes place as well as a practice, but also the, the, the other forms of practice, whether that's driving the camper van or... Um, the administration that goes into setting up interviews or yeah. the coding and, and analysis of interviews. So I think that I'm yeah, I'm really interested in that expanded um, notion of practice that all research is practice. But I guess the yeah, the thing I'm interested in is like is like teasing out the detail of what, what do we yeah, what do we mean by that? Where what, what, what does it feel like? What do these practices feel like? And where are the the roots of these practices in terms of theory and and um, disciplinary knowledge and um, and I feel I, I really relate to that I, the, the the overlaps between fieldwork and um, and as practice um, and one of the 
questions that keeps I keep coming to with my own work and when I'm you know exploring and looking at other people's work is like where where and how processes of analysis take place in relation to practice yeah. so having kind of been through a bit of a little like surface training in social science um in social sciences there are sort of different methods of analysis that you can apply and I'm always like but I kind of use a bit of everything. Am I, am I, what, what am I actually, am I, what, am I a proper researcher if I don't like choose a method of a method of research and a method of analysis, or am I okay to just make, make one up or make up a blended version? <laughs> um, and how, I don't know if that, how do you, because a lot of, I guess, a lot of what we do is about justifying the decisions we, you know, take along the way, but how do you grapple with that and sort of um, approach analysis, I guess, through your work? I'm not sure actually um there's a lot of going backwards and forwards between empirical information and how you structure information so for instance I'm thinking about the database and we had to decide what went in we were producing a database that had to contain all the museums that have been open in the UK since 1960 that automatically raises the question of what you count as a museum And the more we looked at it, the more difficult that question becomes. And so I would then come up with some sort of rubric for how we'd designate a museum. Inevitably, within about a day, that would fall apart. We'd find some example that just did not fit. And then we'd go, okay, so we won't do that. We can't do that. We'll come up with another version of what counts as a museum and that might work for like about a week and then there'd be suddenly be a whole category of things that you could legitimately call museums that didn't fit this definition and or you know all the and so then you'd rethink again and in order to help the rethinking I would read about different ideas about museums and decide that they didn't work either and so there was a lot of going backwards and forwards between what was out there in the world and how you described it and how you created a classification system whilst also reading to try and inform that process. And so all of that is analysis and and trying to get to grips with something that is in the world and how to structure thinking about it. But, you know, if you're doing field work and doing the interviews, I mean, it can be very different. I mean, I ended up writing... The last book, there were chapters that got sparked off by just walking into a museum and something striking me. And often they were quite odd things. So I wrote a chapter about public space and museums as public sphere, which started with me doing the washing up in the kitchen of a small museum of radios and making the curator a cup of tea. Because obviously you don't normally do that in a museum. And so that prompted me to think about which museums have a sharp designation between public and private or you know another museum where I'd spent two or three hours talking to the guy that set it up and it was all it was quite disturbing it was really emotional um I don't mean disturbing creepy I mean disturbing as in the content of what he was talking about was really difficult and that really informed what I went on to write But in a way, you can also think about those as moments of analysis. You are processing something that has happened. So it's a slightly, it's one of those halls of mirrors questions is 
what counts as analysis? Hmm. Where and for whom? I have stopped worrying, though, about doing things correctly. Just to go back to your thing about worrying that you're not a social scientist, I spent a lot of time reading social science books on how to interview. And then one of the things that happened is I realised, because I've now, on several occasions, interviewed alongside people that are properly trained in this, which I'm not, and that we do different kinds of things, but they're not necessarily better or worse. And often people will tell me things that they don't tell the trained interviewer because they they treat me more like I just were having a conversation. So they often tell me about their kids or about their families. And some of this often has a real bearing on why they've done the things that they've done. Whereas I think they tend to be more professional with the trained interviewers. So I think I've just come to accept it's all right the way that I do. <laughs> the way that I do things is okay. And, then, and do you... Um... And you were saying about those those conversations being inspiration for, you know, like breadcrumbs for, for further thoughts and yeah. um, developing yeah. ideas. Do you, yeah. which doesn't make sense to me, but do you also, is are these sort of transcripts then treated in other ways? Are they coded? Do you go down that road or is it just, are they there just for kind of food for, not just for, but they're there, it's really important food for thought? It's depended on the project. So the first project I did, the Micromuseums project, which was looking at trying to question dominant ideas within museum studies by taking the standpoint of the small independent museums. Those were... I basically drove around and had conversations with people and took notes. I didn't even record them. But then always would send what I'd written back to the person who would comment on it. Um, With the Mapping Museums project, which was much bigger and heavily funded and had to be, you know, I was, was you know, director of a, a reasonably sized team. We did, that was, everything was recorded, um, everything was professionally transcribed. Me, the guy that did the oral histories, and one of the other researchers all worked on coding that information as a means of trying to understand what we were hearing. Um, And then I wrote the finished book, which is almost done, but actually didn't really use the coding very much, so I the problem with doing the coding is you you lose you lose the narrative the individual narrative. And what became clear is yes, you could have written something that was thematic about how all transport museums do this thing. But what you lost was the the texture and distinctness of people's voices. And I really wanted to keep that. So I actually worked directly off the transcript. But doing the coding was really important because, as a process, because it made us really pay attention to what the themes were that were emerging from a large body, you know, like a year's worth of interviewing. Um, so, yes, I think, and they made us really scrutinise those interviews very, very carefully to kind of really fine detail. So I think all three of us really learnt a lot by doing that. And then that informed what came next, even if it was a bit indirect. Um, so, but then subsequently the interviews that I've done after the formal end of that interviewing, I haven't transcribed, I have transcribed them, but I haven't coded them, but that's okay. I mean, 
I'm fitting them into an existing framework, so that's okay. So yes, I've done both. I've done the turning up in the camper van unannounced and having a chat, and I've done the formal sit-down recording, transcribing, coding. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. That's interesting. Yeah. And what? Um, just to finish, maybe, um, are you currently supervising any practice PhDs, or have you supervised or and or examined practice? Not. Um, I have examined. I haven't supervised. Mm. I have been asked about supervising practice-based students, but I think I've always felt a bit wary about it because I felt that we. I mean, you you would probably correct me on this but certainly when it first got discussed at Birkbeck I felt that we couldn't really offer them enough but you know in some ways that was because I'd come from an old school art you know art school model where you got a studio and you got workshops and you know I thought it was outrageous that they wouldn't be given these things yeah and I think because you know obviously there's a there's a tradition of creative writing practice PhDs at Birkbeck and yeah um, which doesn't necessarily require a studio but um but yeah the the doing practice let's say practice-based research PhDs there absolutely absolutely often is resource implications particularly for doing yeah. it as a curator or socially engaged artist or because you're essentially going to have not only necessarily the spatial requirements but also you might need to pay other people if you're working collaboratively mm-hmm. and so there's there's loads of uh, resource implications but I think yeah it's sort of it's been interesting through the corkscrew program kind of supporting artists and all and their different needs <laughs> through Burt Beck and doing I practice think research but it's is, is when practice based in art was first suggested at Burt Beck which is a long time ago it was being suggested partly as a means of expanding PhD numbers and being done for very instrumental reasons and I suppose I didn't feel comfortable with that. Whereas now we work in such instrumental university system that the idea of saying no to something because you think it's just being done for instrumental rather than pedagogical reasons seems to be sort of insanely naive. But, you know, maybe 15 or so years ago, it still seems possible yeah. to go, no, <laughs> um, that's just not fair. Surely we can still say no to certain things. We can. We can but... try at least. Um, but, uh, but yeah, oh, thank you so much, Fiona. I'm aware it's nearly 45 minutes, so we should probably wrap up. Um, but thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll put the links in the show notes to the projects yeah. that you've been mentioning as well. No, it, it's a pleasure. I'm sorry some of it's probably rather incoherent, but I haven't actually ever thought about some of these things. Or, and certainly the PhD stuff, I haven't thought about it for about 20 years. So... It's sort of trying to scrape up what happened in the dim past. (laughs) Dredging that up. Thank you for listening to the Corkscrew podcast brought to you by Birkbeck University of London. If you'd like to join the conversation, visit our website in the show notes and sign up to our email list.